Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And welcome back to me. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. And I was taking off some time in July and August in order to care for myself. And holy shit, you guys, a lot of crazy stuff, awesome crazy stuff went down. And I got to tell you, I am feeling more like myself than I have felt in a really, really long time. And I promise, promise, promise that I will tell you all the fun, interesting, exciting, amazing, wonderful details, but not just yet. Today, we have to get down to business. But first, before we get talking about today's guest, let me just remind you a couple of ways that you can connect with us here at Conversations with a Wounded Healer. So you can connect with us on Instagram, which is probably my fave way to connect with people. It, we are at Head Heart Therapy. You can also connect on Facebook at Head Heart Therapy or Conversations with a Wounded Healer. You can connect with us on Patreon if you love this podcast and would love to make a small monthly donation. We would be ever so grateful for that. Um, you could also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be absolutely amazing. And I will keep my promise that if you write something that will make me laugh, I will read it on the air. So you will get to hear your name and all the wonderful things that you said read aloud. <laughs> So thanks again for listening, and I'm really excited to share today's conversation with you. I recorded this several months ago, and I, of course, wanted it to come out sooner, but whatever. This is where it landed, and I think you're really going to dig Aaron Law. So Aaron, who goes by they, she, is a multidisciplinary artist, somatic movement educator, body worker, and emerging politicized healer based in Nashville, Tennessee. Currently, Erin is the embodiment and somatics curator at Activist Theology Project, where she is focusing her work around the facilitation of social healing, especially for folks positioned within the dominant culture who are seeking transformative justice. Hey, that's me. They also teach somatics and improvisation for diverse populations, practice ashiatsu and myofascial release in their massage therapy work, and spearhead various creative projects at the intersection of somatic embodiment, social healing, queer theory, and performance art. So I fell in love with Erin the instant that I laid eyes on her, and I know that you are going to fall in love with her the instant that you your ears lay, lay ears on her? Your ears lay sound? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, you're going to dig Aaron. Please enjoy this episode with Aaron Law. Hello, Aaron Law. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. When this comes out, we will have already released the episode with your partner, Robin. And when I wrote to them, they instantly wrote back and they were like, well, you really need to actually interview my partner. And I was like, how about <laughs> everyone? I'll just interview everyone on your team. So it was a wonderful, wonderful introduction. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I know, so right? Connecting people is literally like one of my favorite things to do. So I love that Robin did that right off the bat, too. They're always doing that, always trying to just share the platform and... Yep. Include everybody. Yep. Well, I'd really love to hear about you. So would you tell listeners more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that it would be important to just say right off the bat, I want to name that I have a lot of privilege and I also have been oppressed in various parts of my life. And so right now, especially with the tension in our mm -hmm. climate and in our neurological climate, I think it's really important to just name that. So about who I am, I am a white, mostly cis 
woman. <laughs> I do identify with femininity. And I think within that, I find quite a bit of fluidity within that. So that's kind of mm-hmm. why I answer that question that way. Um, mm-hmm. And I also would name that I have thin privilege. And then, you know, there are other areas of my life. Like I've got a lot of education. I have a master's degree and I've had the privilege of traveling actually around the world a little bit. And then, you know, there are parts of me, like I said, that are oppressed. And so the biggest one that I can name is that I'm queer. And like I said, I kind of experienced my gender that way. And I also definitely experienced my sexual orientation that way. And I recently come to believe that that queerness is a part of what contributes to my ability to facilitate any kind of healing. Mm-hmm. More on that later, I guess. <laughs> and so then as my background in terms of what I do, my history, I really came up in the dance world. That's really where I focused most of my time and energy throughout my life. I majored in dance in college and I went and got a graduate degree in dance. And before that, I got a certification in movement analysis and a somatic practice called Bartenia Fundamentals, which Hmm. deals with developmental movement. Hmm. And so always weaving through those things was an interest in feminist theory and an interest in queer theory. And also my lived experience of those things intersecting with the dance world. So a lot of my research, all the way from undergrad through grad, and as a professor, I used to teach dance at a couple of different colleges. I really incorporated feminist and queer theory into most of of what I did. Mm. And almost always the people I was reading or drawing from tried to be intersectional. And so there were also often a class analysis, a race analysis, that type of thing. And so in the past few years is really where I've had the most transformation. I shifted into being a massage therapist for many, many reasons (laughs) and almost completely left performing dance and choreographing dance behind and teaching dance technique. And what's left is I teach somatics and I teach embodiment and I teach improvisation to very different groups of folks from dancers to non-dancers and more recently have been focusing on how do I use these tools, all these tools that I've been studying for my whole life in a way that serves social justice agenda. And so that is actually really where I am freshly, like right now. And so more recently, I have shifted completely into working with Robin at Activist Theology Project. And there I am doing the work of curating embodiment and somatic content with the the hope that our team can deliver something to the whole person. And that feels really exciting. And it's definitely like a huge growing edge for me. So mm-hmm. long journey, but that's <laughs> that's what I do now. Yeah. So. Well, I'd, I'd love for you to unpack a little bit what quote unquote embodiment work is, because I can make up what I think that is, but I'd really love to hear more specifically <laughs> what that means to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important starting point. 
I think that we can embody anything, any concept, any structure, any feeling. We can embody anything. So for me, embodiment is about discerning what we want to feel and what we want to sense. Mm. Also becoming aware of the things we don't want to feel and don't Mm -hmm. want to sense and creating a deeper tolerance around those things. So I can hang out when I have a whole lot of shame and be with myself. I can hang out when I feel a lot of anger and my body helps me move through those things without skipping over them. And so embodiment also to me is a literal call to action. I think about movement. I just think about the body moving and the body acting. And those are important things when we want to try to connect back to activist theology, which is what we believe. So how are we enacting what we believe and where are there hidden beliefs that we don't know we Mm. have that we're acting on? And I think embodiment practice and the work of somatics helps us to be able to get into that self-work and understand it from a level of feeling, a level of sensation, maybe even a cellular level. Mm. Do you have an example of what that looks like? I do. The one that comes to mind is one that I've been working with a lot lately. I've been engaging in a somatic practice on my own every day for the last four weeks. And what's happening as I do that, and basically what I'm doing is it's a lot of self-touch, so sort of nurturing Mm. self-touch. So Mm. I might spend some time with my hands on my guts and, you know, my belly and sort of try to feel into what's going on in that space and then move up to my heart and feel that there's a connection between those things. Mm. And then I might move up to my head and give myself some touch there. And so essentially, it's a process of remembering that I have organs, (laughs) remembering that I have emotions inside those organs, remembering my fleshiness, and really just remembering, like Mm. collecting all of the parts together and reminding myself that they are connected, even though sometimes they don't feel like they are. And so what I've been noticing from doing that on the regular is... I'm able to hear more quickly messages from my body and trust them as real experience because they've been so dismissed. I mean, not only in my own personal journey in life, but in our culture, the body is often ignored. And that's, I think, part of why we face so much violence right now. And so what's happening for me is as I'm I'm feeling into sensations or messages that are coming from my body, I'm realizing, oh, that's true. And Mm. in this other situation where it feels like I should ignore this, I'm actually going to go with my body and what my body says. And Mm. so what's happening is these concepts, these sort of structures that we hit up against, like heteropatriarchal, capitalist ways of functioning, and grinding, really, yeah, <laughs> are starting to fall away and lose any type of luster that they may have once had, because I can feel the truth of my body says something else. 
is more Mm. important. So it's like paradigm shifting. And Mm -hmm. then what that does is it allows me to be centered in my own experience and so that I can let that ripple out to others. And hopefully that ripples out to even more and eventually our whole planet. It's not done in a vacuum. It's not done just to feel good, but it's done to acknowledge what is and to develop a capacity to sit with that and then to affect change from that place of knowing. There's so much in there that I want to dig into. So when you talk about this, it's it's so interesting. Like I just, I kind of get like energetic qualities to people's words and what they're saying. And, and as you talked about specifically at the end, you know, this isn't done in a vacuum. I mean, I really hear you having an interconnected relationship with the whole and your individual experience, bringing that to everyone and just energetically, right? And I, I almost hear this intention really to connect to the whole and then also to this this idea of remembering. I've seen lately in trauma circles, people talking about like, you know, we really want to encourage people to trust their gut. And yet at the same time, we've been traumatized. And so maybe our gut doesn't have the quote unquote right answer. But what I hear you do in in slowing down and being so very intentional and really and tuning into the whole to get more information than from just yourself in that way, it really is creating this remembering and, and can bypass whatever, like whatever traumas we may have experience that want to lead us in a different reaction. Yes, absolutely. And I think trauma is such an important part of our learning. It sucks that it happens and it teaches us so much. And I think I left out in my beginning introduction, the most important part, and that is I am a survivor of trauma, as I think Mm -hmm. most people are. Mm -hmm. And the choice to lean in to feeling into what would help me heal from this? Do I have a choice to act differently or to remove myself from the situation or to put up a boundary or whatever it is I need in order to heal from this? And how do I also let my trauma inform how I approach everything, really? Right. And it's interesting through digging into that, That's where I think my healing gifts come from, because I have proven to myself through lots and lots of tears and journaling and therapy and all sorts of things. Over the last several years, I've proven to myself that I love myself Mm. and I stand by myself. And Mm. what trauma wanted me to do because I didn't feel safe before was to abandon myself to leave myself. And so now that that really isn't an option anymore, new possibilities have opened up. And so when I look at, okay, that's my journey, how do I connect that to the social whole where we are deeply, deeply traumatized by the fucking bullshit of white supremacy? Robin, I think I hear them use this term a lot just supremacy culture. Yeah. Supremacy culture has a whole set of characteristics that are so insidious and have become so invisibilized that for us as white people, we don't even know half the time that we're just 
sitting there perpetuating it. And so I think that there's a connection between doing this deep self-healing and being willing to sit with my shit and still love myself to the social whole that, hey, guys, I think as a as a community, as a as a country, as a world, we are capable of looking this stuff in the face and saying we want another way. And so there is this connection. Yeah, I would just reiterate that there is that connection. Yeah. And I, I just want to note you, you probably see I'm, I'm crying. <laughs> oh, maybe I could, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And it's just been a week. So I'm just yeah. gonna let it out. You know, the way that you talked about the self love that shows up for you, I just, whew, that's been a really tough part of my journey that it's it really is my developmental childhood trauma that keeps me from stepping into that and it's just so it's just so beautiful really to witness and gives mm-hmm. me a hope you know for my own journey and um to kind of connect that with supremacy culture it's just you know shame that lack of self love really can keep us as white people from engaging in that work you know, and you even said before we started recording that there that there's the shame that comes up for you too, and into oh, really stepping into wanting to be an activist in the healing world, and it's just it's so interconnected. And I'm I I feel really there's something about you that just really creates this very holy space. I don't know if people have told you that before. I'm sure they probably have, but I'm just I don't I'm just feeling really touched and really moved, and I wow. So thank you for being so vulnerable and just letting that out because this is what we need to do. And I I want to say to if you have people of color who are listening to your podcast to feel free. I mean, you know you you can do this, but to feel free to just kind of turn it off. Yeah. Because I think that we we as white people do need a space where we're not trying to take it over or colonize mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but we can have times and moments like these to share so mm-hmm. deeply about shame. Shame is the thing yeah. that keeps us from even admitting that there is an issue right. and that we might be complicit in it. So to that end, can I talk about a project I'm very excited please, about? Please. <laughs> so this is very much at the beginning. And interestingly, I think it intersects with your work. I I read a little Mm. bit of your bio and it intersects with your work so beautifully. And the reason I want to share this as a completely unformed, unpolished idea is to offer a vulnerability in sharing something that's not done and as a way to decolonize knowledge creation. Mm, it's not perfect, right? <laughs> it's That's not great. perfect and it never will be. Mm-hmm. And I also feel, I, I know I learned this from a couple of different people. For some reason, Elizabeth Gilbert comes to mind. I know that she talks about this and I'm sure there's others that talk about this, that when we have ideas, they they visit us. This is her her theory, that they visit us and we don't have ideas. They, they come mm-hmm. to us through us. And I know this to be true about this particular thing because I have the sense that other people are receiving this idea and I'm choosing to do something with it. And I want to invite other people 
to do something with it. And so Mm. I'm just going to be really candid and say I went through sort of the beginning of like the real deal healing for me (laughs) was I went to adult children of alcoholics six years ago. And from there, like that was the space that really opened up everything else that I discovered Mm. after that. And so, you know, I say that to say also like my parents are not alcoholics, but we had some dysfunction Mm-hmm. in our growing up. And so I'll, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And I was seeking a resource to just be able to deal with that. And my one of my grandparents who passed away before I was born was an alcoholic. And so I know mm-hmm. that these things have been passed down, especially yep. behaviorally. And so yeah. I went through this program and it just was the thing I needed to break me open. Mm-hmm. And part of the beauty and the magic of it was that these are my peers. You know, I yeah. right now, I know your listeners can't see me, but I'm like looking to my right and looking to yeah. my left. I'm like, hey, these are the people, right? And I did go through therapy. I had the privilege of going through therapy in tandem. And I also think that that was just such an important resource. So I've been through this, that program. Part of my history also is that I was married to a Black and Puerto Rican woman um, for... 12, 13 years we were together. And, you know, that interracial dynamic really shaped Mm. me in deep, deep ways. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the learning around race that some folks are are just now waking up to, I had to do in my interpersonal relationship. Mm. So I certainly learned ways while I was in the relationship, I learned ways that I was complicit in white supremacy or in perpetuating racism. Mm -hmm. But as I've been out of the relationship and having more time to focus and think and reflect, I'm seeing even more ways that I was Mm -hmm. complicit. And um, obviously that's been quite a bit of stuff to unpack. On the flip side of that, I've also been a witness to this incredible Black woman who is an example of just brilliance and innovation and beauty and hope and joy and all of these amazing Mm. things to witness her oppression in an interpersonal way. I, I mean, just to give one example, we would walk down the street and probably twice a week, someone, usually a white person would ask, can I touch your hair? And then they might touch Mm -hmm. it anyway, even if she say yes. So I witnessed thousands of microaggressions towards her. And so I think between all of that and my experience of going to ACA, the idea to circle back that came to me is what if we try to develop a 12-step program for white folks right now? (laughs) I see you reacting. Erin? Literally two weeks ago, my friend and I started doing this. Literally. Erin, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I mean. Do you see what I mean about the idea? Yes. The idea came to several of us because I was also talking with a friend and said, hey, this idea came to me. And she said, me too. I had the same idea. And I said, well, okay, let's work together. (laughs) Holy shit. Oh, my God. Keep talking. You're incredible. So what I found in this, and this is brand new, I've really literally just started working on it just about a week or two ago, 
with the ATP team, or specifically with Jeff Kochi, who's on the ATP team, activist theology, what we found, Jeff found this blog post that I can share with you so you can put in the show notes that is an attempt at creating these 12 steps. I think it's called 12 Steps Toward Recovery from Whiteness or White Conditioning. That may be what it is. Mm. We'll find out and it'll be correct. Yeah. And so Jeff sent me that and I said, okay, you know, I think it was from 2017. So, okay, someone already did this work. So what we're looking at is, all right, this is a great start. And to me, you know, as a member, a former member of ACA, I feel like this is our, it's the people's work, you know, so we all get to shape this. So Mm -hmm. I wondered to bring it back to the body, you know, how can I use some of my somatic and embodiment awareness to shape the language and the practice in this new iteration of a, of what might be Mm -hmm. a 12 step program. And then the beauty of that is it becomes everybody's. It is everybody's. It already is clearly because we're, we're all kind of onto something around this. And again, like I feel like it's so important to share this in its nascent stages because I, I think everybody should be working on this who can, you know, yep. everyone who feels like they can. Yep. Um, because, you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. Yep. And if you can do that, then everything else will come. Usually everything else will come if you can admit mm-hmm. that first step. And I think that this is a way that we might be able to counter some of the shame Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. guilt and perfectionism that white folks in this particular moment are really trying to grapple with. And, you know, I think you and I probably both have this some background. I, I think you do a lot more than I do. I have a general understanding that when we go into shame, our nervous system isn't exactly primed to be making better choices or Mm -hmm. new decisions or or to learn how to make new decisions. And so I think what we need to do is to heal ourselves in community. And what appeals to me about this more is that it is a decentralized model. So it's not me going to my therapist in a vacuum, which I will still do and I will always do, but it's me in community with lots of other people where I can see, hear my experience that has been invisibilized in many ways on purpose to keep the Mm -hmm. power dynamic imbalanced. And I can go, oh, oh, okay. I'm not alone in this, which is another myth of supremacy culture that I have to do this all by myself. No, you don't have to do this by yourself. You absolutely don't. And you shouldn't. And if you do, then it's only going to perpetuate the way the power dynamic is. And so I think there's some real potential and magic and beauty in all of this. And then, yeah, I think to add, I'm working with anyone from just random friends who are like, yes, I want to do this, to Jeff, who's my colleague on the team. And I just spoke with Carrie Connolly, who's a really brilliant author who's been doing sort of anti-racist work for a good bit. And uh, she just wrote a book called The Good White Racist. Hmm. 
And I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but we've been in conversation. And I I think that the title alone is probably a good (laughs) recommendation for folks to read it. For sure. And so Carrie is also really interested in doing this work. And so I think that the more we sort of circulate this, the more we'll have a program kind of ready to go soon. There's an invitation in this that I perceive. I'm a big Adrian Marie Brown fan maybe like borderline obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) And I can explain more about that in a little bit. But she wrote a book called Emergent Strategy. It's on my nightstand. Everybody should read that book. I think that what she invites us to look at is things emerge. And that's what is. What emerges is what is. And so with this particular project of the 12 Steps, I I want to invite folks to see it as this thing that is emerging always, that's living and breathing, that can shift and change and evolve and adapt. And that feels a little different maybe than what the ACA or AA or other 12-step programs are. But I think that this will need to do that, especially given the topic. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I am not surprised at all, but I am so excited that we are right on the same thing and we don't even know each other. <laughs> so funny. Well, my my friend who she's a half Japanese and so she identifies as a woman of color. She's been really my, I don't know, we're sisters and she's been really helping me on this journey. And so we decided to collaborate on doing a presentation on anti-racism to essentially try to decolonialize the addiction treatment community mm-hmm. because people of color experience addiction just as much as white yeah. people do, but who shows up in treatment? White people, exactly. right? Yeah. So as we were kind of coming up with our presentation that we knew was going to you know, blow people out of the water, like the idea just kind of came to her. And so we started trying to essentially like rewrite the 12 steps Love it. under the guise of this being a, you know, white, essentially white supremacy recovery support group. Right. And so it's, yeah, I'm in, I would rather not have to do the work myself. So I will join you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in, I mean, I'm connected to the addiction community. So I, I will, I will use my platform and, and help you. Yeah. Well, so, and I want to touch back on, you're saying your friend, what's their name? Sarah Suzuki. Sarah. Um, mm-hmm. And you said that she is a woman of color. I think that's another important step that I'd like to highlight just as like a model of something that I feel like feels ethical to me is that I think that the labor of this really needs to be on white folks Mm -hmm. because obviously we know the Black experience is not monolithic. Right. It's varied and complex. And I would say probably about half of my Black friends right now are completely exhausted and like on retreat, actually. Wow. And then probably the other half are like somewhere between like, you know, horrified, but wanting to work together, or maybe even just waking up to the ways that they've experienced racism. And so I think for my friends, especially who are, whew, really, they've had enough, and they're done, you know, in this last week, I saw so many of my friends say, you know what, my DMs are full. And mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of requests from white women to like, yeah. give them information. 
and give them content and I've had enough. And I, I hear that loud and clear. That's not something that's a new concept to me, but I think for a lot of white women who don't know what to do, they run to a person of color. And in fact, that ends up being quite harmful. And so all that's to say is, I think if you didn't know, now you know, and I know that's a hard thing to hear for some people, but now you know. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's important for us to do the labor, especially right now, so we can take that Mm -hmm. burden off of our siblings of color, especially Black folks. And then my hope is to fundraise so that we can pay a consultant who Mm -hmm. is hopefully a black person, but also people of color to mm-hmm. to look at our work for our blind spots, because I think yep. we cannot do this <laughs> and not right. include some type of whiteness in there because mm-hmm. we can't possibly see it all like that is impossible. And that's, I think, what's so frustrating for for so many white folks, you know, including me. I wish I could see it all, but I can't. Right. And right. So. Mm-hmm. That's my hope is to get it to a workable point, you know, and of course, we all I think all of us who have agreed to do this have people in mind who they would would want to ask. Mm-hmm. But that feels like a, a beautiful step. And I just I guess I want to invite all of our white listeners to hold this moment as a potential to really do some deep healing And also to offer compassion, because I know that that's scary, because I've been there. Exactly. I've been there, and Mm -hmm. I've been been where you are, and it sucks. And also, if you can just be brave enough to take that first step and admit, it will be okay. (laughs) And there are people in your community who want to hold space for you in your confusion right now. Exactly. And honor Mm -hmm. that. Right. Since we've talked so much about shame getting in the way of this, that's been something that that has always saddened me about doing the work. Like white people have to create some sort of space of compassion so that we can bring in people who don't get it. Because if, you know, I I had several clients this week who didn't get it. And if I would have come back at them with like, well, you should do your research or you should, you know, like that's not going to do anything. Right. right? Like, and like you said, I've been there. I was there not too long ago Mm -hmm. and I still am there, you know, a lot of the time. So it's really, it's painful. And that's, because it's so painful, obviously humans just want to run from pain. And so we don't want to do that work. And that's kind of the brilliance of the way that white supremacy has constructed itself. I also want to say something you just said, I can't remember what it was, but it reminds me that, you know, I think I may have given an impression when I said I've been there. Like, I don't want to give the impression when I say I've been there that I have arrived. Right. And I think that's another beauty of the 12 step Mm -hmm. work is that invitation to go, yeah, okay, you were brave. You faced this stuff. You even apologized where it was safe and not harmful to do so. Like you really, okay, good job. But like, let's keep this process going. Let's not fall asleep again. You go one through 12 and then you go back to one. You go back to one and, and there is an invitation in there to constantly reflect, keep mm-hmm. looking, keep reflecting, because you will find every day yep. new things that need to be addressed. And when you expressed your sadness and other emotions earlier, when you were letting out some tears, 
I really resonate with that because right now I have my shit together. I'm talking to you, but like I was telling you, I think probably an hour before we started talking, I was in tears. Mm -hmm. And the day before that, in tears. And the day before that, in tears. And you know where it came from? Shame. So like... Yeah, it came from shame. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not supposed to be doing this work. Like, nothing I ever do is going to be good enough. No, no, Mm. no. And I mean, those voices are there. Fine. They can be there. And also, they don't get to like, hold down the whole thing. I mean, so I just think it's important to be able to recognize that. I am just so excited to be having this conversation. (laughs) It's just amazing. Me too. I want to talk to you forever, but I also want to make sure to ask the questions that I always ask about being a healer. You know, how do you feel about that word in terms of your work and and especially weaving in all of this as well? Yeah. Yeah, So I want to be a a dork for a second. I love Deepak Chopra so much. And you can have whatever opinion you want of him. His work has helped me just hold space for myself. And the reason I bring him up is I was doing one of his meditations the other day. Mm. And the theme of it was embracing your role as both healer and healed. Mm. And in this meditation, he talks explicitly about the function of our cells and that they Mm. fearlessly go towards what will heal them. And so in that way, yes, I identify with that word healer because at a cellular level, our bodies do that. As far as my impact on others, I think I can facilitate healing out of my own understanding that I have healed myself. And Mm. the empowerment I get from having healed myself in being facilitated by others is sort of the prize, I guess, that I have (laughs) from all of the the pain and the difficult work. So I think, yeah, that word healer is important. And I think we all have that capability at a cellular level. Mm -hmm. And it just takes bringing it into our awareness and our consciousness that we are actually able to heal ourselves. And it's, painful and difficult. And it is amazing because what it yields is resilience. And it shows us, oh my gosh, I survived that. And then I survived all of the toxic emotions that I experienced Mm -hmm. after that. And I'm still alive and I'm here and I'm living. So yeah, I would say that's kind of where I'm at with that word. And Mm -hmm. I identify with it in that I feel I facilitate healing for other people and maybe groups of people by virtue of my own healing. Mm -hmm. And in that answer, you really talked a lot about wounded healer too, without saying that directly. But do do you have any additional thoughts on, on that term? I do. I think Wounded healer puts everything in perspective. I think it helps us Mm. hold the whole of the person who may be facilitating the healing. And I think I may have already said this, but if it were not for my wounds, I wouldn't have to heal. (laughs) So, of Mm. course, I'm a wounded healer. And my wounds, the more I can hold them as these little gems, the more I can lean into 
what are the next steps that I need to heal and not even just to heal, but to live and thrive in the next mm-hmm. moment. You know, that's my goal is to mm-hmm. thrive more than anything <laughs> is to seek, yeah. honestly, to try to seek pleasure, which can be hard, but I think there's right. something in that connection of remembering my scars in my heart and wherever else they may be and mm. never forgetting that and valuing how I have survived. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as you were talking, I was also thinking too, if we more so embrace the idea of wounded healer, that creates more of an equal playing field, which then is decolonizing the idea of like that you go to this person to get healed. Right. And right. And as therapists, you know, we are taught that it's an equal partnership. And yet, because of the way the institution is and because of the the faith that people give in us, you mm-hmm. know, I've had clients come to me and expect that I am doing the work to heal them. And even though I'm trying not to come in with that, the institutions, I, it's just making me think how supremacy really That's is exactly everywhere. Ex- I was just going to say that. Yes, we are not immune to supremacy culture in any corner, crevice, Mm -hmm. little nook and cranny on this planet, (laughs) unfortunately. And the more we can recognize that, the easier it is to begin just screw by screw dismantling and deconstructing. And it's easier for me to not take it personally and feel like I'm a failure and I'm, you know, I'm perpetuating supremacy and racism. It's not about me. It's about the system. And once I see that, again, if if I'm more connected to the whole and we have healing in the whole with each other. (laughs) Right. Dude. Yeah. I think one more thing I would say around that, what you just brought up, reminds me of this book I've just started reading, but I know it's phenomenal. So I'm going to recommend it. It is called something like The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. It's Mm. by author Nora Samarin. I'll send you a link. Yeah, please. (laughs) And um, in the beginning of the the introduction, I think her pronouns are she. Apologies if I get them wrong. But she describes this school in Vancouver where the students are taught from a very young age to basically hold each other accountable and they're Mm. taught that that's safe and they're taught that that's expected and so if you and I were playing on the playground and I did something to harm you you would write me up and we Mm. would go to a justice council together Mm. and you would name what how I hurt you and I would hear that and then I would Mm. receive support for why I may have harmed you wow And these kids, kiddos, are learning this Mm. at a young age. And so she says, imagine, imagine if that was everywhere. And it can be. I believe it can be. Maybe we won't see it in our lifetime, but I believe very strongly that it can be. So I think there's something there in, hey, there are other possibilities. Because I think supremacy culture would have us believe that there's only one way. Right. That if you don't police people, they're going to run amok. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality is there are many, many ways. And that way that Nora Samarin describes really appeals to me. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Well, 
I am just blown away. And I am so, 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 so glad that Robin introduced us because this yeah, conversation has really too. just been filling my heart. And I, yeah, I really needed this magic that you brought today. Thank you so much. I needed it too. I needed it yeah. really badly. I knew it. Robin said, you know, if you don't feel good, you can reschedule this, which is, it's sad, but I need to be reminded of that. Right. Same. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. said, you know, I didn't think about that. Thank you for the suggestion. And I think it's going to do me some good to have this conversation today. And it almost always is the case. It sucks talking about shame. But then once you do it, you're like, I mean, I personally in my body, I feel like 10 pounds lighter. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, do you want to tell folks where they can find you and learn more about your work? Sure. So my personal website is AaronLawEmbodiment.com. And you can also find me on the Activist Theology Project website. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think the only other thing I would say is when we go to whatever the new normal is after there is eventually a vaccine for COVID and all of this, I'm also really looking forward to being able to do embodiment work. So work where people are moving in groups to experience some of these qualities of emergence that I kind of Mm -hmm. touched on with Adrienne Marie Brown's work. So that is a passion of mine. But right now, I felt like it was more important to talk about the 12-step work just because that's where we are in this moment is what's accessible to more people because we can't necessarily be around folks. So just be looking out for that in the next couple of years, that that will be an offering to facilitate group embodiment experiences around these hefty things like racism and supremacy Mm -hmm. culture and all of that that you may be trying to deal with in your community. We will have to bring you to Chicago and (laughs) I would love that. No question. We could get tons of people interested in this. Oh, great. Well, I would love to come to Chicago. That would be so awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm kind of in awe of (laughs) how great this was and, and you're just, you're, yeah. A holy, it just feels holy. This disconnection just feels really like a spiritual heart connection. Yes, I feel that too. I feel that too. I'm so yeah. grateful that we could, you know, just get to know each other. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. We're getting to know each other in front of everyone, essentially. I but love it. It. <laughs> <laughs> right oh. now, it's just you and me. But in a minute, right? It's gonna... <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I just, I really cannot appreciate you enough right now. Oh, thank you. I feel very honored by that. I really do. I received that. And uh, I thank you. And thank you for this incredible work that you're doing, both in your own professional life and on your podcast, and just for your willingness to be so open and vulnerable and model that for others. That is, I think it's worth as a guest on your podcast, naming that, because I do think that other healers and other folks who are doing this work need to be reminded that we we must model our yeah. own vulnerability or else like shit ain't gonna change. <laughs> exactly. So, Thank yeah. you. I received that as well. Thank right. you. <laughs> 
Thank you so much to Erin for sharing space with me. Wasn't that an amazing conversation, you guys? So to check out more about Erin, you can find information on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to Andrea Klunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mulet for our theme music. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.